This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is the time when we do the, uh, it's like a Pink Floyd slash Sonic Youth Bill Newman show feedback. There we go. I love it. There we go. Audio. It's so fun. It's so fun. Hey, Monty. Hey. Next week, there is Monty's March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. Heard how, of it. how about giving us a preview of what you'll be doing, who you'll be doing with it, where you start, where you go, what you hope to accomplish? Because I just read the news release. It's very impressive. Talk oh, to us. Even I didn't read that. Am I in it? <laughs> you, <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs> oh, that's great. You are. Uh, Down near the bottom, there's a little mention of you. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, this is the 13th time that we'll be doing this March for the Food Bank, which I full-throatedly admit it's a shameless publicity stunt to raise money and awareness for the Food Bank of Western Mass and the work that they do. It started uh, years and years ago when the radio station, The River, across the hall from here, would do a food drive out in front of, say, Whole Foods, and people would drop their cans off, and it was great, and the Food Bank takes all that in and puts it to great use. But the brain trust there at the time said, you know, that Cancer Connection fundraiser that you do is really great, and you know what the Food Bank can really do? do is take your dollars and stretch them really far. So it might cost you three bucks for a can of chickpeas at Whole Foods. We can buy a whole pallet of chickpeas for three bucks. Right. I think the food bank can actually make what a consumer would normally spend at a Whole Foods or a Big Y or a Stop and Shop is the equivalent of, I think, $9 of purchasing power or thereabouts. For the food bank, there's an enormous multiplier. Yeah, right? they, the way that they spell it out is $1 equals four meals, which is pretty great. Wow. Yeah, so that may even be more than nine, but that's the way that they have broken it down for me, that they can basically provide four meals with each dollar. So we turned it into a fund drive, and uh, I have been pushing a shopping cart from Northampton to Greenfield for 13 of these events. However, over the last six or seven years... We've turned it into a two-day event starting in Springfield to Northampton, 17 miles on the first day, and then Northampton to Greenfield on the second day, uh, inspired by a guest on this show, B. Dewberry, who is a woman who is working with the Mason Square Health Task Force, who was explaining to me about food deserts, how there are more people that live in the Mason Square neighborhood of Springfield than live in the city of Northampton. You're telling us about the inspiration for the second day. For the day. second day, for why it now starts in Springfield, and the fact that there are no mainline supermarkets in that neighborhood. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that that neighborhood is populated mostly with black and brown people. And I wanted to be able to tell those stories or have those people tell those stories to the people north of the so-called tofu curtain. So now we start in Mason Square. We'll be at Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services on Monday morning. We'll push off at 7. We'll walk through Chicopee and Holyoke, and we'll stop at a couple other food pantries along the way until we land here in the parking lot of the radio station uh, in the afternoon on Monday. The schedule for Tuesday is a little more exacting. You can't lollygag around till 7 o'clock in the morning where you set off. You set off, I think, at 6 o'clock in the morning from Congressman McGovern's office. Do I have that correct? That is also correct. Yeah, right here on Pleasant Street, right around the corner from the radio station. And Congressman McGovern got involved after the redistricting, after the last census, when this Northampton became part of his district. And he, of course, has been a staunch advocate uh, for fighting hunger for a long time in Congress. And 
the offer was made by now state rep Natalie Blay, who happened to be his legislative aide at the time, saying, hey, the congressman would really like to do this march with you. And I said, sure he would. <laughs> yeah, I remember being in the studio. <laughs> the, the congressman would like to do the march with you. And we said, wow, what an amazing offer. Yeah. I mean, it's never going to happen. Right. But it's wow, he actually said that. And he's now done it every year since then. And even when I expanded it in from Springfield to Northampton, that is not his district. He still continues to do it, much to his wife's dismay. She she specifically asked me when I went to the White House conference on hunger, nutrition, and health to put it back to one day. And I said, he doesn't have to go both days. I tell him that every year. But uh, he, he will be there both days again this year. Right. And every day, and every year we cover Monty's March, which we will do on Monday and Tuesday next week. Monty will be live from the road. We will be here uh, making sure that we are comfortable uh, and we will be, well, uh, Questioning him about that's the word I'm looking for about the weather, his feet, how everyone's doing, yeah, and whether he's taking good care of our congressman. Because, I try, because you know, we wonder about that. Do you still go up uh, that horrifying hill, in Amity Amer- Hill, the yeah. Amity Hill Horror in in Amherst, as we like to call it? Um, it is a very steep hill that leads up to Amherst Cinema and the library there. And uh, luckily, I got a lot of help pulling. It's basically pushing <laughs> and pulling that cart at the same time. And we're usually on the Bill Newman show or right before the Bill right, Newman there, show, people, right around never, 9 o'clock on Tuesday when that's happening. Right. And I ask, how are you doing? And they go, oh, we're fine. We're fine. Yes. We're fine. That's one of the only high hills. The rest of it is mostly flat. Then the very, very end of it on Bank Row in Greenfield is the other kind of high hill. So that's the last hill to climb, and then we're done. Okay, hills yep. to climb. Monty, before we turn to State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, who's who is with... often on the march. Are you coming this year? I will be on the march this year, yes. Excellent. Wow. Although I dispute the horrors of him, Amity Hill. Well, I not, think... You don't have a shopping cart and try to broadcast uh, at the same time. That is true, <laughs> but running up those double hills for the hot chocolate run oh, on yeah. Smith Campus, that is the most evil. You've chosen to run at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That is true, but yeah. you have chosen to push a shopping cart. That's true. Right. Well. It, is, it is a free choice. Um, it does raise the question, uh, how did I get into this and what was I thinking yeah. of and other things, thoughts like that along the way. So, Although I'm going to say I'm very glad that you mentioned that we're leaving at 6 on Tuesday because I did read somewhere we were leaving at 7, which would have been very disappointing. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> where, tell me where that is so I can go correct that person. 6 o'clock six Tuesday, yeah. 7 o'clock I am a very Monday. punctual person. So. You are. Yeah, very Phil punctual. Corman from CISA was like, oh, they'll leave at six-ish. And, I'll, and, uh, and he, no, we'd already t- taken off. He had to run after us. <laughs> <laughs> you made Phil Corman run after you? That's I'm not going to slow down the whole entourage. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I see Phil Corman running daily. He, he is up he's, to the challenge. He's good. Yeah, right. So Lindsay Sabadosa, state representative, I have your new newsletter, which says, among other things, well, you have new uh, municipalities in your district. Congratulations on your reelection, a hard-fought campaign. There, it was a hard-fought campaign indeed, yes. Okay. Representative Sabadosa, I think this is not a secret, did not have an opponent in this election. I did not, but I did have the opponents of question one and question four, so there was that. There there was, and indeed question one and question four uh, were passed by the voters, uh, not by overwhelming margins, but by significant margins. Your, your thoughts about I, that? I agree statewide, not by overwhelming margins, although I will say within my district by, by truly excellent margins. And that was one of the things we were really hoping for, um, that communities where there was already a lot of support, we would see significant voter turnout. You know, this was 
a race where there there just weren't a lot of contested seats. And I really think a lot of people took for granted that those at the top of the ballot were going to win. Um, it wasn't much a surprise that Governor-elect Healy is now Governor-elect Healy. So we wanted to make sure people didn't just think, I can stay home, I can sit this out, this will all work out just fine. Um, we need to be focused more on other states. We wanted to make sure they voted here and that they showed up. And the voter turnout was excellent. I was at the polls all day and it was, it was exciting to see people coming in and to see those who, who volunteer their time there at the polls, um, just really thrilled at the number of people who were voting. Right. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about the ballot questions uh, in particular, but not exclusively about ballot question number one, the Fair Share Amendment, and ballot question number four, the Work and Family Mobility Act. It was interesting to me that those ballot questions uh, received a lot of attention and a lot of concern and a lot of input and a lot of activism. And that's something that if you told me 25 years ago, boy, this community is going to get really excited about two ballot questions. I said, really? But in fact, it happened. It did happen. And you're right that it's historic. And I, I believe it was a day or two before the election. There was, um, do, you, do you read that section of the Gazette that talks about, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, I forget what the Bridgman, title of it is. Jim Bridgman's column. Yeah. yeah. And, and so two or three days before the election, it, there was a little clip that said, uh, voters have defeated a, a tax increase by by ballot question, and and so there it was just such an interesting change. And in fact, voters in Massachusetts defeated tax increase proposals regularly. I mean, consistently. Every time they they yes. come up for a vote, or prior to this time, Massachusetts voters have turned down uh, tax increases, even if. They would not affect the, the, the voters in the least. Exactly. I think I heard Max Page say it, was, it had been about 100 years uh, since Massachusetts voters had <laughs> increased taxes. But I, uh, I, I won't I just beyond verify my, the veracity just by, Just beyond my time horizon. I would love <laughs> to be able to confirm that for Max, but I'm not able to do it. So, very exciting. It was very exciting, qu yes. Question one passed, question four And passed. I, you know, I think something that's really interesting, too, and people don't realize, that you know, this whole idea of ballot questions and referendums, you know, sometimes I think people roll their eyes a little bit and they, they think, oh, this isn't really, you know, this is a new thing. This was, um, you know, part of progressive era politics to, to get ballot questions on. But really, that you know, referendums like this have a tradition in Massachusetts. This is how we decided that we wanted to uh, become an independent nation, <laughs> through referendums in communities right across the state. Um, so the history of this is really deep and I think important for voters to know that they are participating in something that has gone on for hundreds of years now. And it's very direct democracy. Very direct democracy. So let me ask you this. Uh, now that question one, the fair share amendment, is a part of the constitution of the Commonwealth and there will be a, a surcharge of 4% on those in those who have income, actually not on the people, on the income over, the adjusted gross income, to be more precise, of over a million dollars a year, an additional 4%, uh, estimated to be about $2 billion in revenue yearly for the Commonwealth devoted to education and transportation, but without much more refinement as to what that means. Tell us how you think the $2 billion is, or the additional $2 billion is going to be spent. Representative Sabadosa. Well, I, I'm only opining because, of course, the ballot measure just passed and this has not, uh, the legislature has not decided how this is going to play out exactly. But what I would say is that we have a number of, um, 
of provisions that the state has not fully funded. And I think we've discussed them on this show many times. Uh, we talk about the, the charter school reimbursement rate, which actually in this year's budget was fully funded for the first time. Um, we have By please, which please. you mean the amount of money that goes back from the school district from which a student comes to the sco- charter school so that the school district where the student lives isn't penalized by that student leaving, financially penalized. That is accurate, yes. Uh, we also have reimbursement rates for transportation, which have not been fully reimbursed. I think we were at about 85% in this year's budget. It might have been 84 um, But we're certainly not at the 100% mark, and that's something that is really painful for communities, particularly as we see rising transportation costs. So if it were up to me, I would say the very first thing we should do with this money is make sure that we are fully meeting all of our statutory obligations meaning that we're fully reimbursing municipalities for all of the costs we're obliged to do by law but have not been able to do due to lack of financing. You know, Representative Sabadosa, that raises a question uh, that the opponents of question one really harped on, which is how do we know the legislature is actually going to spend an additional $2 billion? How do we know they're just not going to backfill the money that they would have spent anyway and it just becomes part of the general uh, funds that are up for grabs and a designation by the legislature. How can we be sure the legislature is going to allocate the additional $2 billion a year for these purposes? The emphasis in the question being on additional. Right. Well, I think there's a number of ways that you can see this. I mean, first of all, the the budget, while it is um, large and perhaps sometimes unwieldy, uh, is public information. So you will be able to see exactly how the money is spent. And and of course, your local legislator will be able to tell you that. Um, We will also have the auditor who is there double checking how state dollars are spent. So there will be reports showing where that money is going exactly. Um, But I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is about voters holding legislators accountable. And we have said that this is where the money is going. And I think that you've seen a trajectory of the legislature trying to make more investments in education, which has been challenging. Every report shows that what we need to invest is is, uh, woefully underfunded. And that I think we focus a lot on the K through 12 sector, which is important. And there is quite a bit that we we are not meeting our statutory obligations for. But we also have early childhood education and higher education, both areas where we need to make significant investments. So I I don't think the legislature is going to pivot away from making those investments. I think we're actually really excited to do so. And if you look at the legislation that's being proposed, the conversations that are being had with early childhood education in particular, there was a great report that came out last year right before the House released its budget, but sort of as the budget was already baked, telling us where we needed to make these investments. And these are always in the the B billion dollar ranges. These are not small investments. And it really just comes from from decades of underfunding. And I think as we alluded to at the beginning of the program, when you have um, sort of a fight against taxes and this belief that I'd rather keep the money in my own pocket rather than putting it in the pool so that it can be used for the general good for decade after decade after decade, you do see a lot of areas underfunded. And we could have the same conversation for transportation. You know, I, you mentioned my newsletter. In my newsletter, I talk about, yes, I, I see Bill getting very excited. Viewers can't see that, but I am very excited <laughs> about the newsletter. But it's but th- that's how I'm going to start the second second segment of our talk. So let's well, take, no, a break. Gonna, <laughs> take a break. Right. We're take we'll a break. All right, we're going to take a break. Is that okay? Yes. And then we're going to have really exciting news. The beginning of the newsletter. Really seriously, it's totally cool. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
Hey everyone, it's Tina Marie, co-pilot of The Cambridge Connection. I'm also a certified credit counselor. For 25 years, I've been helping people have a better relationship with money while getting out of debt. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP, join me, Gordon, and our variety of amazing experts who stop by to offer great advice navigating the daily financial maze of life. Tune in as Donna French of Almighty Pet Connect helps you avoid scam artists when you're finding your next pet or rehoming the one you have. Shop the work of over 200 artists in glass, ceramics, clothing, jewelry, and more. At the Snow Farm Second Sale, the artists may think they're seconds, but you'll never know. Except by the price. Three weekends in November, with new work every weekend. Shop local and handmade. You'll support Snow Farm and the artists. Reserve a shopping time in advance to limit large groups. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 10 to 4 in Williamsburg. The Snow Farm Second Sale. For details and reservations, go to snowfarm.org. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it, and if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. The Valley and the world's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus goes over the hill. Young at Heart Chorus celebrating their 40th anniversary this Sunday, 3 p.m. Academy of Music, Northampton. Celebrate 40 years of Young at Heart with new reinterpretations of their most iconic songs from their repertoire throughout the last 40 years. From the concert halls of Northampton to the silver screen with an award-winning documentary to tours all over the globe, Young at Heart and their music is beloved. Celebrate their 40th anniversary with them this Sunday afternoon, 3 p.m., Academy of Music. Tickets, aomtheater.com. Young at Heart Chorus's 40th anniversary concert this Sunday, the Academy of Music. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And just to follow up on our ads, the Young at Heart Chorus performance is those tickets are selling extremely well. If you want to go, and you do, you should go buy your tickets as soon as possible. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. You are the same you, but your district is not post this election. So tell us what communities you now represent and which communities you no longer represent on account of the redrawing of the district map. So I continue to represent the communities of Northampton, Hatfield, and West Hampton. I sadly no longer represent the communities of Southampton and Montgomery. And I have the pleasure of now representing the communities of Williamsburg, Chesterfield, Goshen, Plainfield, Cummington, and Worthington. 
That's a ton of tons. <laughs> it's nine. And it is the lead paragraph, but not what I want to ask you about on your newsletter, which just came out to your constituents, of which I am one. So the main, two of the main uh, issues and uh, events and happenings that you address in your newsletter, I know you would like to share with our listeners, so please do. Representative Sabadosa. Well, one of the first things I wanted to bring up since we were just talking about uh, funding for transportation was for the PVTA, which uh, the PVTA, the FRTA, no matter what RTA you might write on, for the month of December, there will be no fares. So the reason I want to share this is a lot of people buy monthly bus passes. And they should not do that for December. They should save their money. They can put it away. They can spend it on something else, whatever they'd like. But they should not do that because the fare will be free. The legislature has provided funding that the PVTA and other RTAs are using to make this happen. So this is a great time to save your money. Don't buy your bus pass. And if you don't usually ride the bus, get on the bus. Is there a theory that by getting people on the buses, the people say, hey, this works. It's convenient. It's it's." clean, it's good transportation, it's the routes make sense. All of those things. It is the best way to get around. First of all, it's one of the cheapest ways you can possibly get around, but the buses are clean, they're efficient, they get you where you need to go. And when we hear people talk about we need to expand public transportation, that doesn't happen unless you ride the bus. <laughs> if you don't use what we have, the message to to the PVTA and to the state is that people don't really want the service and that they can cut back in certain areas. So the best thing people who want public transportation can do is to get on the bus, whether it's a grocery trip, going to the movies, uh, taking a ride up to UMass to see uh, they have lots of art exhibit shows going on, whatever that might be, get on the bus to do it. And the trains. And the trains for sure, but the trains aren't free this month. The PBTA <laughs> It starts when? On, on Black Friday, the day, Friday after Thanksgiving? Is that, that is true? correct, yeah. yes. And okay. goes all the way through New Year's Eve, it right? It goes all the way through New Year's Eve. So great way to get home on New Year's Eve if, uh -huh. if that works for you. Another matter in your newsletter that you'd like to bring to our attention? So the other thing I wanted to talk about is an event that we are hosting on Saturday. And we're doing this because a constituent reached out. Every year, my office participates in the Connecticut River cleanup. We usually go down to the meadows. And there's this one family that lives right near the meadows. They are so dedicated. They come and help us, and then they go regularly to clean up. And over the last few weeks, they've pulled 380 pounds of garbage. They found multiple dump sites. And there's so much there that they reached out and they said, can you help us organize, get a few more hands so we can dispose of this properly? Um, they have been paying for the disposal of all the waste that they find, which is not an insignificant sum. Um, so this time the city is, has stepped up and they're, they're letting us use a dumpster so we'll be able to throw things away correctly. We're going to be meeting at the airport at 9 o'clock just outside of the airport, and then we'll drive down to where the sites are. We'll have trash bags. People should bring gloves. It's going to be in the 40s, which, come on, for New England in November is basically... Ba balmy, balmy. Balmy and wonderful, right? Great weather. Right, you don't want it any warmer than that because you're going to be working a little bit hard. Yes. And you and yeah, I mean, Plus, we do have things in New England called sweaters. We do, indeed. We do. This uh, the, During the last cleanup, we actually found a bathtub that someone had disposed of. It was so heavy that it took seven of us to try to lift it, and we were not successful. We needed to bring in machinery. Tell us where to meet again. At the Northampton Airport, 9 a.m., this Saturday, November 19th. And how long do you think people will be engaged for? We're only planning to be out there for, for an hour or two. Um, so we're really hoping... A, Number of people will show up, and we'll be able to clean up these very specific sites. 
Many hands making light work. Many hands making light work. The more, the merrier. Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, thank you so very much for being with us. We really appreciate your time every month. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An explosives manufacturer has plans to lease land in Waitley from Bay State Blasting, a Ludlow-based corporation that specializes in drilling and rock blasting. Bay State Blasting owns land on Chestnut Plain Road in Waitley, where the international explosives manufacturer Maxim Corporation plans to lease land to store explosive chemicals. Building inspector Jim Hawkins wrote a letter to the corporation saying they may need an updated special permit, but executives from Bay State Blasting argued the new lease agreement still complies with the special permit. The Waitley Zoning Board of Appeals held a meeting last night to discuss the future use of the site. A celebration of life for the Merry Maple on the town common in Amherst took place Wednesday. The event was held by the Amherst Public Shade Tree Committee for residents to pay their final respects to the tree, which could be anywhere from 80 to 150 years old. Tree Warden Alan Snow and the tree committee made the decision over the summer to cut down the tree to make way for a $1.8 million overhaul of the green space. The Merry Maple was taken down by Linden Tree Care yesterday. And Northampton continues their annual Bag Day tradition. Northampton's Bag Day, which encourages shoppers to do their holiday shopping locally, is tomorrow. For one day, shoppers can bring their own bag to participating local businesses for special offers and discounts off of their purchases. Bag Day will last from open to close at all participating businesses, with some locations doing an additional Bag Day kickoff today. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. Partly to mostly sunny today. I expect will be brighter in the morning as opposed to the afternoon. Still breezy, a high of 40 to 44. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temps in the 30s. Overnight low 18 to 24. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 40 to 44. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La administración de Biden planea pedirle a la Corte Suprema que restablezca el plan de cancelación de la deuda estudiantil del presidente, según una presentación legal del jueves que advierte que los estadounidenses enfrentarán tensiones financieras si el plan permanece estancado en la Corte cuando los pagos de préstamos están programados para reiniciarse en enero. El Departamento de Justicia está luchando para mantener vivo el plan de Biden después de que dos tribunales federales lo detuvieran en las últimas semanas. La agencia está pidiendo una acción rápida para bloquear ambos fallos y permitir que el plan entre en vigencia incluso mientras se desarrolle en los tribunales de la nación. Los defensores y algunos demócratas en el Congreso están presionando a Biden para que extienda la pausa de pago hasta que se resuelvan todos los desafíos legales, a pesar de que aseguró anteriormente que la congelación terminaría después del 31 de diciembre. En otras informaciones, la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, dijo el jueves que no buscará una posición de liderazgo en el nuevo Congreso, poniendo fin a una carrera histórica como la primera mujer con el mazo y dando paso a una nueva generación para dirigir el partido, después de que los demócratas perdieron el control de la Cámara ante los republicanos en las elecciones intermedias. En un animado discurso en la Cámara de Representantes, Pelosi anunció que se hará a un lado después de liderar a los demócratas durante casi 20 años y tras 
tras el brutal ataque contra su esposo Paul el mes pasado en su casa de San Francisco y después de haber hecho el trabajo del pueblo. La demócrata de California, una figura fundamental en la historia de Estados Unidos y quizás la oradora más poderosa de los tiempos modernos, dijo que permanecerá en el Congreso como representante de San Francisco, cargo que ha ocupado durante 35 años cuando se reúna el nuevo Congreso en enero. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, We are joined in the studio by Priscilla Lynch, who is a Connecticut River defender, and Carl Meyer, whose article you probably read in the Greenfield Recorder or Daily Hampshire Gazette yes, uh, this past week or the week before. He is a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and Pocky Whelan, longtime political activist here in western Massachusetts. Uh, from Northampton, I, when I knew her for many, many years, and now from Greenfield. Let me start. Priscilla Lynch, there is an, a, an action happening this weekend. Uh, it is really important. The issue that's being addressed is really important. People need to show up for this. Tell us what's happening, and then we're going to get to the question of why. We're going to have a rally on Saturday at 2 p.m. at the um, Connecticut River in Northfield by the Mountain Mount excuse me, Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station, and we're calling it Don't Sign the River's Death Warrant. And that is about First Lights uh, seeking relicensing by FERC of their Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station. Okay, stop right there. What's First Light, what's FERC, and what's the storage station? Okay, First Light is a venture capital Canadian company that runs the power station at, now, at Northfield Mountain where they pump water from the Connecticut River up the mountain, release it for energy. Um, and they do this, um, they buy low, they buy the energy when the price is low, they release it when they can get the higher amount of money for it, and uh, they make a profit. They don't pay, they're in a Delaware tax shelter, they don't pay great taxes on it, they just take the money and run. So First Light is a company that runs this facility in in Northfield. Correct. And they buy when the rates are low, like at night, and they use a lot of energy and they send a lot of water up the, up the mountain. And they store it there and then they have it come cascading down the mountain where it creates uh, electricity th uh, through the turbines. Um, and uh, then that's happening when prices are higher during the day when energy uh, use is higher, so the price is higher. So They're taking water, the same water that they just pumped up, and they're having it cascade down, and they're just making, and they're not just, and they're making a profit by doing that. How do they But, power the pumping to get it up the mountain? What do they use? Because they're making clean, green hydroelectric energy when they release it, but... Good question. They're using fossil fuels. What does that say? They are that? using fossil fuels. That's how they get it up there. And then they call themselves green. Okay. What's the problem? Other than, well, they're using fossil fuels, and the same water goes, comes up, comes down. What's the problem? It's destroying the river. It's uh, using fossil fuels during this time of a climate emergency. And it's feeding a huge investment company with profits that they're really not earning fairly. Okay. So what I want to know about, uh, as someone who's downriver here from Northfield, is What is this doing to the river? Why did you use the? Why did you say this is a death warrant for for the, for the river? Carl Meyer, you wrote 
uh, a piece about this that was in the Recorder recently, in the Gazette as well. What's the problem? What's it doing to the river? The problem is that this is actually the, the most, the deadliest machine ever emplaced on the Connecticut River, drop dead deadly. Um, it consumes the river at up to 15,000 cubic feet per second. And if you want to imagine that is about seven or eight three-bedroom homes every second, 60 per minute. I think it comes out to about 2,800 an hour. And all the aquatic life that goes up through those turbines and comes down again in a, in a in Northfield Mountain sleigh ride, there is no expectation of survival for anything from fish eggs to full-size fish. Okay, wait a second. Aquatic life. Fish eggs, fish, they go up, they're pumped up, they come back down, and the difference is they are pumped in when they're alive and they come out dead? Exactly. Uh, there was a person, a young person wrote in an op-ed in the recorded ones that said they suck in life and they throw out death. What are the estimates of how, much, how many fish are killed? We don't really have that. All the studies, according to Ken Sprankle, Connecticut River Coordinator for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in this federal relicensing, the only study they did fell apart for juvenile shad. But you're talking about 2 million juvenile shad was one estimate per year sucked in. 10 2 million, million juvenile shad. shad. Two, 2 million tiny shad. Sucked in and, and exterminated, plus 10 million eggs. But that is only... One species out of 24 that, that are in this 20-mile pond, they like to call their reservoir, they never mention the Connecticut River, and we don't know the entire extent of this, but the, the amount of, of energy, of climate-scorching energy that, that they suck in, actually at times sucks the river backwards for a minimum of three miles because they only had to do a five-kilometer study, so backwards from like the Franklin County Industrial Park all the way back to Northfield. And sometimes when they spit the river back out at 20,000 cubic feet per second from through their, back down through their turf, it pushes the river back towards Vermont on the north end. And, and these are just, this is the amount of wasted energy that is, it's, it's an ecological disaster for the river. Why is this issue in the front in, uh, of, of news and your activism now. Pocky Willen? Well, because this is where we live, and, uh, and it's our river. And to watch this happen to our river is, uh, is unconscionable. It's, it's, it serves no, you know, the question I have is, well, how do you spell boondoggle? Um, it's, it's doing nothing good for the people of, of western Massachusetts or Connecticut or even Vermont, um, but so so why do it? So what we're saying is shut it down. Don't relicense it. Let it go back to nature. Hmm, sounds like a plan, huh? And so join us. Join us on Saturday at two o'clock at this site to actually see it and to and to lend your voices to saying no to first light and yes to life on the river. And it's important to know that it's about to be relicensed, and that could go on for as many as 30 years, op 50 years operating at this, without any major adjustments to, or any concessions in regards to what they're doing right now. Maybe a net in front of where, but nothing in consequential about the relicensing. Well, you know, the thing to know about the net is, too, they're proposing this net, but it won't uh, be in place for nine years following their relicensing, which will take at least another year. So, so who, so, if not hundreds of millions of fish, will die, then they'll put in a net, which may or may not work, and will continue to just suck up the river correct. the way it's going yeah. right now. And I, who's going to, is this the FERC that is going to relicense this facility? 
it or will is be being FERC asked to do that? Yes. And is it totally up to FERC, the Federal Energy FERC. Regulatory, Regulatory Commission? Regulatory Commission. Yeah. yeah. It, the ultimate decision is up to FERC, and I think um, you know, with with the public's input, this has all been done under non-disclosure agreements, right, with the power companies. This is all happening underground. We don't even have names with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Mass Division of Fish and Wildlife. We don't even know. The public has no idea. But what the public can say to, to, to the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Mass Division and National Marine Fisheries Service is don't sign it. Walk away. You can walk away from this process that was supposed to take five years, now has taken 10 and First Light, which is Public Sector Pension Investments Canada, $20-plus billion thing, they've been spending money like drunken sailors in other places, in a New York bite, and the Allegheny River buying up facilities there, and they haven't put a dime in our river and haven't put any flows back. So people can walk away from this and let FERC be the decider, but you don't have to close off this for coming generations. This is what, what I think the public needs to understand. And we don't need it because a few years ago during uh, the height of summer when it was very hot, uh, the, uh, the excuse, of course, is this gives us electricity so you can just go in and always turn your light on and, and the, turn the switch and the light goes on. But it doesn't. It, it was. It's not necessary because that's one of the fallbacks, right? I mean, we need to be able to, to have electricity, right? Um, it's been shown that we don't use it. We don't need it. It's surplus. And if they wanted to, they could make it a closed circuit, pull up water one time and continue to use that, but they won't, right? Isn't that another option there? Um, that, that was raised, Monty. The, the, the problem is you, you can't just build a billion, billion, billion dollar thing without new engineering and finding a place to do it. But I, one, of the, one of the things that uh, Priscilla of the Defenders has said to me is the thing that we're never asked to do in this, in, in this freight train that is a climate disaster is we're never asked to... Cut down on our use of, you know, electricity, fossil fuels, and energy. And um, that's something everyone tells us, all of the scientists, all of those, you know, informing us about climate change that will have to happen. But it will have to happen across the board. It will have to happen with the military. It will have to happen with corporations, not just ourselves not using our clothes dryers. Dryers. But there's no money put forth in all these climate bills for education or for these kind of efforts. And we're not going to get there if we don't do it somehow. First light shutting down would be one way to do that. And the other thing we want people to know, the part of our call, not only, you know, to stop this destruction of the river, to restore the river, for these agencies to disentangle themselves with first light, is that we're calling for this land to be land back for this land to be returned to natives so that they, in their way of dealing with nature and relating to nature, can restore this area and can move all of us forward in our relationship with our land and the earth. Let me confess ignorance. I did not know there was a company called First Light until I read Carl's article. Um, does First Light then sell the electricity to some other energy company, or, or did or they directly sell to consumers here? I mean, who are they? I mean, I don't understand a, a, a multi-billion-dollar Canadian corporation taking our money and destroying our river. Got that. But where does the electricity go? The electricity goes into the ISO New England power grid, and it, and it, it, is, um, it is bought up. Most of um, First Light's power goes 
directly to ISO who parses it out as an insurance policy for the one one day or five days a year that they, they might need emergency power. But it's 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 sold at something called forward capacity market bids, which oh. go out at which go out several years in advance. Let me go back to Priscilla Lynch for one minute. Where do we go? Where do we meet? What do we do? We go come everyone tomorrow, Saturday, the nineteenth at two PM at the Riverview Picnic Area in Northfield. You can go Google that and get directions. And it's we'll easy to get to. It's simple it's to drive to. It's very easy to get to. And we'll be rallying at the mouth of this uh, facility at, at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock tomorrow. Everyone come. Thank you so much. Uh, Priscilla Lynch, Pocky Whelan, Carl Meyer. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. We all know how food insecurity affects families all over the Pioneer Valley. That's why the United Way of Pioneer Valley is asking all of us to be extra generous this year on Giving Tuesday, November 29th. Your Giving Tuesday gift will help the United Way's Feed a Family Fund keep giving essential food supplies to those in need right here in the Pioneer Valley. This year's effort will not only help feed families here at home, but also families in Puerto Rico affected by Hurricane Fiona. So this Giving Tuesday, November 29th, give generously to the United Way of Pioneer Valley so they can continue the important work they do all year long. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Do you want a front row seat for this year's hot chocolate run for safe passage? Join us as a volunteer on Sunday, December 4th to hand out stickers, serve hot chocolate, help runners along the race route, and much more. The hot chocolate run is about all of us, our community, coming together to make Hampshire County safer for survivors of domestic violence. Safer for everyone. You can help make this year's event a success. 
Learn more and sign up today at hotchocolaterun.com slash volunteer. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel, the pleasure of the introduction is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, who do we choose to remember and how? The exhibition titled Brief Encounters by artist Daisy Patton at Pulp Holyoke examines this question. She joins us this morning. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Daisy, you are a multidisciplinary artist born in LA and now currently living in Western Massachusetts. And I know your upbringing has a huge influence on your work. Please share a little bit about what that was like. Oh, goodness. Yes. Um, well, I, like I said, I lived in Los Angeles, uh, moved to Oklahoma and, and went back and forth between California and Oklahoma. Um, I grew up without my father who I know is Iranian, but never got to meet him or even have a photograph and mm. lived with my uh, mother and my younger sister. And so this sort of like sense of absence has always been uh, this lingering ghost within my family and within my life. Mm. Um, and you know, the, the body of work, Forgetting is So Long, actually began out of this space of estrangement with my mother. So mm. the sort of loss of kinship was something that I found to be something I could relate to in finding these discarded family photographs in some random boutique in Denver, Colorado. Um, oh, well, I was just gonna ask you about when you discovered discarded family photographs were your muse. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, initially had been a painter and went through a painting block for eight years. And during that period of time, I, I became a photographer. And so I was very um, familiar with the language of photography, both in terms of photo theory and then, of course, the printing, the, the actual like mechanics of being a photographer. And so I had returned to my painting practice and was working on my own personal family photographs. I was mm. using, uh, I was painting small realist paintings of my family photos and inserting the father's presence into them and sort of mm. creating this alternate timeline or reality where he was present. And mm. I hate painting realistically. <laughs> and so, truth be told, I don't have patience, <laughs> which if you see my work, you'll laugh because it looks like I should have a lot of patience. Um, I just like to suffer. And so in any case, I, uh, I had my grandmother's photographs who I'm named after and wanted to make them into a project, couldn't figure out what that was going to be for a very long time, and then became estranged, uh, which we've now reconciled. Um, and so I stumbled across a box of family photographs that were for sale and immediately was drawn to them and mm. sort of their power. You know, family photographs have been touched and held, and so they're imbued with all these memories, mm -hmm. but they're memories that we can't access if we're not the original owners. Right. Um, so the, the same sort of like hauntingness and this, this loss um, that well, made me choose to collect them. Well, you know, you describe your painting process as a kind of re-enlivening. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. So 
if you think about a family photograph or you think about a photograph in general, it, it is made with like a split second. There's a very finite amount of time that is used to expose the camera film. If it was film, if it's digital, it's the same process. Uh, so it's a static point in time. Uh, mm. And there's a lot of photo theory that talks about photography as death. So death of a moment. Sometimes mm. when we're looking at old photographs, there are people who are no longer with us. And so painting, on the other hand, is a sort of elongation of time. Time doesn't really matter. It's not linear. It, it can be whatever it is. And so the combination of painting with photography, to mm. me, is this sort of like re-enlivening. So um, I see painting over the enlarged family photographs as a, a loving act of remembrance and also as a way of sort of pulling the individual to the present moment with us to have this sort of moment of visitation. So, so describe to us, if you can, we are on radio, describe to us your process, when you, how you begin a painting and how you choose a photograph and then what you do with that image. Yes, so I, it's a little bit of a falling in love process. So first I've fallen in love with the photograph. Um, you and then swiped right with, the, <laughs> with one of the yeah. photographs. Um, I, it is a love that is sustained long enough because I, I have like 5,000 photographs in my collection at this point. So someone is selected. Uh, there's usually a color that comes forward for me. And so I create a sort of color mock-up to help me with color relationships, but that doesn't tell me how I'm going to paint it. Mm -hmm. And then it's a very intuitive process. I'm, I'm working with each individual person. And so, as I mentioned, they are life-size. So mm -hmm. they're very large paintings. Um, if you uh, visit the exhibition, you'll see that there are five large scale. They're anywhere from 80 by 60 to 80 by 68 to 90 by 60 for the largest scale. Wow, well, they're huge. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> my sense of scale is really skewed. So I'm like, oh, that's like my normal size now. Oh my gosh, okay. Um, and so it's it's a back and forth sort of process. You know, I am thinking about it from the context of painting. So, you know, this sort of um, texture, uh, thickness of paint. I like paint. I want to see the paint on the painting itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, also covering different parts or obscuring things is, is almost like, you know, when you're having somebody whisper in your ear, you kind of lean in to pay a little bit more close attention. So for me, when I'm doing that on the painting itself or on the photograph, I'm asking you to look a little bit closer at those individual mm -hmm. moments. Because mm, I, I, I was looking at some of the images and there are some sort of broad swaths of paint sort of obscuring a big part of the portrait. And then there are these tiny little details of patterns that you paint on certain surfaces. I mean, there's so much to look at. And then you think about the person that you actually chose to bring forward uh, to the present. And so I sort of questions like, well, what, what is it about this particular person? There's, there's so much to look at when you're looking at one of your portraits. Um, and I agree that you're, you are re-enlivening them. There's sort of these ghost stories but in a different context, because you don't know who they are, we don't know who they are. And so we actually have to create our own memory of this person, which I think is fascinating. And, you know, the series, well, this exhibition, Brief Encounters at Paul Polioke, is an iteration of an ongoing series called Forgetting is So Long. I love that title. Where does that come from? Uh, thank you. It is a Pablo uh, Neruda uh, poem um, uh, tonight. I can write the saddest lines, is I think I remember off the top of my head. And so it's a line out of there. Um, love is so short, 
for getting it so long. Oh gosh, it is such a beautiful comment. So if you go, if you want to see Daisy Patton's portraits, go to Pulp Holyoke. It's uh, on 80 Ray Street. And how long is it up, Daisy? Uh, December 4th is, I believe, the last uh, weekend. The last weekend to see it. And, you know, they're just in it in, you know, this time of year when now all the color is gone, all the leaves are down and you're sort of seeking some sort of color. You know, you walk into this space and it's just vibrant and gorgeous and, you know, congratulations on your show. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your work with us today. Thank you so much. And I really look forward to hearing what you all think of it. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> now, I mean, just sorry. Sorry, Bill, you had a question. No, I just no, want, I just, I just thought it was make a comment that it's, I think it's a particularly poignant exhibit at this particular time of year. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have a final mm -hmm. thought for us in our last 15 seconds about that. <laughs> well, well, I mean, Daisy, welcome to Western Mass, first of all, and I can't wait to meet you in person. And just go see some art this weekend. It's a gorgeous day. Paul Polyoke, it's right on the river. Um, he has amazing shows up there, and you definitely need to check it out. Daisy Patton and Donabel Cassis, thank you both so very much. You've been listening to Artbeat. Can't wait to see this exhibit. Thank you so much for bringing it here. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success. As we enter the season of giving, thank you for considering a gift to Junior Achievement. Throughout November, when you make a donation of $25 or more to JA of Western Massachusetts, you will be entered into a raffle for a pair of Boston Bruins Winter Classic tickets at Fenway Park. To make a donation, visit jawm.org forward slash donate to make a gift you can be proud of. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's